All right, all right. So um, here's, the, here's the thing, right? So I just can't help myself when Milky Ways. What if I just start eating? All right, all right. I won't. It'll get in my teeth, and I'll, it's not going to happen. I'm like, I'm going to have to. All right. Uh, <laughs> we'll be praying. You'll just see me walking over there. Um, now I'm all thrown off. Where were we? All right. So what is it, right? What is it with certain foods or whatever it is that just have an ability to hit our weak spot? Now, it's not just with foods, right? I think at some level of you and me, there's kind of this gotta have it type of temptation or attitude that's within you and, what's if, and it's within me, right? Now, what's yours? I mean, we all, we all have things, right, that um, whatever they are, it's just really difficult for us to say no to, right? Whenever it, it, wherever it's presented to us, whether we're in this situation, whatever it is, it's just really, really difficult for us to say no to. Now, maybe for you, it does, it's not food. Maybe for you, maybe it's money, right? For some reason, you, just, you really struggle with when you have extra zeros in your bank account, you almost like try to get them all to one zero, right? Like you just feel like you need to buy things, right? Or maybe for you, it's like, you love gossiping, and you hate that about yourself, right? No one's like, I love gossiping, right? But, but like the fact that when like you're in a group of people and someone starts talking about something juicy or whatever it may be, right? You just can't help yourself. You're just going to talk ill about somebody, even if you don't really know them that way. Yeah, the way they wear that outfit, whatever it is, right? You're just going to start talking ill about them, and you hate that about yourself, but you just feel like you just have to jump in that conversation. Or maybe, maybe for you, it's not money, or gossip, but maybe for you it, it is shopping. For some reason, you feel like you just have to, you, you make like minimum wage, for instance, man. You just feel like whatever the new thing is, you have to get it, right? The new iPhone 11 Pro or whatever it is, and it, you just feel like you have to get the new things. Or maybe it's lust. Maybe you have an addiction to pornography, or, or you can't stop sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Or maybe for you it's stealing, or maybe it's complaining, or a million other different types of temptations. But no matter what it is, all of us at some level have something in your life and something in my life where it's just really difficult to resist. It's really difficult to say no to. And so over the next few weeks, I want to talk about that thing in your life. I want to talk about that thing in my life and do it in an honest conversation and ask, really, what are those things in each other's lives as we kind of journey through our series entitled Flirting with Disaster? Because here's what I really want to do over the next few weeks. I don't just want to talk about this. I'll be honest with you, right? So I get the opportunity of, of, of spending a lot of, of my time here as I work here at church. And um, I, get, I get the opportunity, the honor of, of you know, writing s- sermons and things like that. And so often, right, so often I can just stand up here and I'll be, I'll be reading my Bible or whatever it is just for regurgitation. So that I have something to say on Sunday night or any of the seven services that we have, right? And so that I just have something to say. And so I don't want this to just be here for the next few weeks. I actually want this to be transformative for you. I want this to be a practical series where you can continue to move forward for what God actually has for your life and what he has for for my life. And so I I don't want this to just be in your head because God, when when he speaks to you, he never just bypasses your mind to get to your heart. Rather, he informs your mind to change your heart. And so really... What I want to do, like I said, is not just talk about it. Rather, I want to confront the areas of your life and in my life, these areas of temptations in your life or in your faith that actually have the ability to really ruin the plan that God has for our lives. Now, maybe you're here today, and, uh, and you're kind of thinking, all right, this is kind of like a downer of a topic. This is why I don't normally go to church, because, like, the guy on stage starts to tell me about all the ways that I fall short and how I suck, and that's why church sucks and pastors suck and whatever, right? Now, and if everyone falls into temptation, like, why, why do we have to talk about it, right? We're all, we're all going to slip up here or there, so why should we even spend time talking about it? Well, let me ask you just a question. Have you ever been glad you've gave in the temptation? Have you ever been glad you really gave in the temptation? Has it made your life really any better? Now, maybe, right, for maybe a few minutes, but have you ever found out that after you, you cheated on a test um, or maybe after you, um, you watched pornography or you lied to your parents that your life got any better? In other words... 
did giving in the temptation make you feel like you had more peace with your parents or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever it may be? Did it, in other words, positively aid into the health of your friendships or your relationships? Did, it, um, uh, did you feel more or less guilty after it? Did you, uh, at the end of the day, feel better about yourself or worse? How did it affect your self-esteem, the way that you view yourself? I'm willing to say that it probably didn't positively do any of those things. It probably positively didn't influence your self-esteem. Rather, it probably negatively did. See, most of us know, right? We know that giving in the temptation always makes the situation worse, and it makes our self-esteem worse. It makes our relationships worse. It makes our relationship with God worse. But even though we know that's true and we are tempted with whatever it may be, we're almost, we almost feel powerless to say no. Like, where is that? And where does that come from? And I've done talks on, on this big term called harmatology. It's just the study of sin and, and how it has affected all of man. We, we did a series a really long time ago um, where I, I talk about something, by the way, sin affects the mind. It was called Noahic sin. And we could talk about that in the series, but rather I want this series to be more practical than my natural inclination to make everything really philosophical and theological. And so where does it really come from? And, and, and is, there like, is there a solution for you and me to conquer the temptations in, in our lives, in your life and in my life? See, what I'm willing to bet is no one's ever given you, because in most cases no one's ever given me, good tools to deal with our temptations effectively. See, because the reality is, right, we're all going to be tempted because temptation is all around us. It comes in all these different forms from lust and envy and greed or et cetera. And so one of the tools that I want to give you guys today, and every week I'll probably give you a new tool or something along those lines, and to deal with temptation effectively is I wanted to give you the tool of setting up proper boundaries and safeguards because we flirt with temptation when we don't set up proper boundaries and safeguards. Let me give you uh, a few silly examples that are extreme for this. A few years ago, I had a buddy come to my office telling me that he kept sleeping with his girlfriend and that they couldn't stop. So they scheduled a meeting with me, which was fantastic. And so we sat in my office, and, uh, you know, they're on my couch and chairs. And, uh, and they're like, yeah, you know, like, we just keep, we keep slipping up, and we, we want to, you know, make this relationship Christ-centered. And so what would be your advice? I said, break up. <laughs> and they just looked at each other like, that's not going to happen. So, all right, uh, plan two. Um, always remain vertical. Like, what? They're like, yeah, yeah. Like, never get horizontal. Weird things happen when you're horizontal, right? So always stay vertical. And, like, he came back to me, like, six months after, and he's like, yo, that, like, worked, right? And I was like, amen, man. And so now they're married. They can do all these weird horizontal things, right? But, uh, <laughs> or vertical things. I don't know. Um, <laughs> don't, don't use your imagination. Um, right? <laughs> Whatever. I had another friend who was addicted to pornography, and uh, he told me he had to use his smartphone for work, so he couldn't get it a dumb phone or whatever. And so um, he decided that he was going to take the door off his room. So, like, one day, he just, like, took the door off his room, and his parents were like, what happened to your door? Like, it broke. Like, you want a new one? He's like, nah, I'm cool. Right? That's, like, an extreme measure, but here's the point. Here's the point, and here's, here's, our, here's our point I want to give to you. Perfect. It says we get to, we, you and I get to create. We get to create extreme boundaries, safeguards, or you get to have extreme regret. But here's the, here's the thing. You get to choose that. And here's the good news. The good news for you, the good news for me is Scripture knows that you and I are going to be prone to temptation. And that temptation will lead you and I, it will lure you and I, if, if we allow it to grow into you and I sinning, into you and I doing something we know, you know you shouldn't be doing. And so because the, the authors of Scripture knew that you and I would have this inclination, we would have this desire to do something we know we shouldn't do, they wrote about it all of the time for you and me and for their, and for their buddies so that they would know how to face temptation. And so one of the authors we're going to be jumping in today um, is uh, James. Now, James, smart guy, he was Jesus' half-brother. 
And um, he kind of starts off his conversation in the book of James, chapter 1, starting at verse 13. Um, and he has some really interesting things to say about temptation. He says this. He says, when tempted. Now, right away, right away, you and I, we learn something about temptation. And James doesn't say if. If you'll be tempted. Rather, when. It's a certainty that when you get tempted. See, temptation is going to happen. It's a certainty. It doesn't matter your GPA, your athletic ability, how tall you are, your race, your gender. None of that matters. How often you come to church, how spiritual you are. If you went to Guatemala with us last year, none of that, none of that matters. No one is excused. It doesn't ever go away. You don't get like a, like a, like I give you like a holy white belt. The more times you come to young adult and all of a sudden you've like arrived and you're like, you no longer struggle with temptation. That doesn't happen. So James continues and he says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone, this is important, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. This is super, super, super important when we talk about temptation. And that is that it comes from something that's with inside you and with inside me. See, temptation doesn't work unless there's something inside you that already has a desire to do whatever it is you're tempted to do. And that makes sense. Let me give you an example. I'm not tempted to envy. When one of the girls in here walks in with like a really expensive purse, I could care less. Like if one of the girls in here came with like a $100,000 purse, I would say animal abuse. I don't know what I would say, but I wouldn't be tempted, right? My wife isn't tempted when, when someone pull, uh, tempted to envy when some, someone pulls up here in a really nice truck. She doesn't care. In other words, right, I have certain, you know, temptations and sins that I'm prone to that's different than what you are prone to. And so because you wouldn't, you wouldn't watch or because you would um, eat it or watch it or, or, or whatever it may be, there's something inside you, there's something inside me that is kind of wired to us uniquely that makes us prone to certain sin. And that's actually super important for you to understand because what that means is our frustration at why we can continue to do the things we know we're not supposed to be doing, our frustration staring at us in the mirror. It's you, it's me, it's us. See, we are the problem. According to James, right, he says that we can't blame anyone or anything because you are the problem. We have to own it. I read an article this last week that just made me so angry. Um, the article was from a guy's perspective, and it was a, um, a stats of rape that happened on college campuses. And so the premise of the article uh, basically was this, that if women were to wear less revealing and attractive clothes, that rape statistics would go down. I Googled where this guy lived because I wanted to beat the crap out of him, right? I was like, what a stupid egocentric view, that how he was willing to put all of the blame on someone else, and there was no, there was no blame for other guys in this situation who have 100% of the fault here. I was pissed at this because it was his desire, his willingness to offload the blame. James says, no, 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 when you're tempted to do something, you are the person to blame. The external things that are around you, that's not it. You've probably either one, place yourself in that environment, or two, get out of the environment, but whatever it is, it's not others that, that, are, that tempt you to do these things. So here's the point. In temptation, no one is a victim. We are all volunteers. But James doesn't just end with saying that we are, we are pulled, we are lured by our, our evil desires. He actually goes even further and says you are enticed. And the term enticed actually translates to being baited. Let me give you an example. Where's Jennifer been fishing before? Ian's like the, he's a fisherman over here. He like pulls up his like fishing rod. Um, <laughs> so whether you've been fishing or not, I, I used to go fishing all the time. I used to love it. Um, my neighbor had a boat and a little center console fishing boat. We used to go to Catalina all the time, and it's like 19-foot center. It was crazy. Like, I'm surprised we didn't die. And so anyways, um, I used to love it. Right now, I don't have the patience to it. I'm like become a squirrel for some reason, and like I just want to just dive down and find them. Uh, <laughs> right, I just don't have the patience for it. But whether you've been fishing or not, right, 
Everyone knows the point of fishing is to do what? Catch a fish. But that's a lot easier said than done because fish, they don't want to be caught, right? So the, uh, the job of a fisherman is to make whatever the bait he throws into the water look as appealing as possible. For example, I had a lucky shiny plastic worm that for some reason worked all the time. I don't know why. But the designers of this worm knew they had to make it look delicious. They had to make it look tasty and shiny and appealing that the fish couldn't help themselves almost. They almost had to take a bite of this thing. Now, the way you make it look irresistible is you hide the hook as best as possible. Right? If you don't hide the, the hook, the fish aren't going to bite. I mean, fish are pretty stupid. I don't know if they're that stupid. But more often than not, I've never caught a fish just by throwing a hook into the water. Right? But if you bait it right and you make it look as harmless as possible, you're almost likely to get a bite. And as soon as the fish bites, you reel them into your dinner plate. That's basically how it works, right? Now, James is saying that sin almost works in a very similar way. And because of that, when we're enticed, you've got to remember there's a hook in every temptation. That hook is luring you. It's dragging you into something terrible. And you have to see that. You have to understand that you're being baited. You're being, you're being led uh, uh, to think that in every situation and every temptation that you give into, that it's not that big of a deal, for instance. That could be one. But that's a lie. And more often than not, what ends up happening is, is you, you kind of you think to yourself, like, well, I can avoid the consequences if I do give into it. Or, or I, can, I can work it out so at least I don't get in trouble. But that's another lie, too. See, more often than not, we give ourselves what seems like perfectly good reasons to convince ourselves to move forward with something we know we're not supposed to be doing. And so here's my point. It would be this. you got to remember that every sin has a hook, that every sin is going to lead you to something terrible. You know, as I was thinking about this, I saw a problem that arises. And the problem is, for many of us, we like to flirt with sin. Many of you, you guys know you have a drinking problem. And yet, you still decide to go out with your friends thinking you have the self-reserve not to get drunk, that you'll stop after two beers or whatever it may be, but every Friday night, you remind yourself in all of Instagram that you don't. Or maybe, maybe you have a sex addiction, right? But you've convinced yourself it's okay, and it's not that bad because your addiction's to a screen called pornography. Or, or maybe, maybe, right, like, you know that every time you and your girlfriend or you and your boyfriend or whatever, uh, that you guys hang out late into the late hours of the night, that weird things start to happen. But for some reason, for some reason, you have not yet to, to create the proper boundaries to safeguard your relationship and to make it God-honoring. In high school, whenever I do Q&As or I talk about the topic of sex or relationships, I almost always get this question that I, that I, I just hate. It just irks me. You know, there's, like, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Wrong. This is a stupid question. Here's the question. How far is too far? I was going to slap a kid when he asked that question. How far is too far? It's a silly question because like, you know, the, the question is basically like, how close to the edge of death can I stand staring over the Grand Canyon? It's like, why would you want to find out? So sand flips off you know, behind you and you just fall to your death? Right? Like, well, why would you even ask that question? And it's the wrong question because it's like sin is not like standing near the edge of a cliff. That's not what it's like. Rather, it's like infecting yourself with a deadly pathogen. And even the smallest dose of it has the ability to ruin your life. The illustration that I give often in, in student ministries in junior high um, to get this kind of to make sense with students is I, uh, I said, imagine I was making like shakes up here, right? Like I'm just giving you like, you know, whatever shakes um, I'm making for you guys. And all of a sudden, um, I decided that you saw over here, I had a plate and I'm like just, I had a knife and I'm taking this little, looks like chocolate and I'm putting it in the shake. There's a little chocolate and it's, and it's Zara's poop, right? It's my dog. She's a corgi. And so anyways, I'm putting it in there, right? And I'm blending it up. How many of you guys would be just comfortable with even the smallest amount in there? Whether it be a small amount or a straight log, you don't want it. You don't want it, right? Because the smallest amount of it makes it impure. It makes it 
tainted. It ruins the drink. See, when we flirt with sin in our own lives, we're flirting with our own disaster. Even the smallest amount of it has the ability to completely derail your life. It's as silly, right, as, as toying with a nuclear bomb, right? Or, or imagine this, right? The illustration that came to me this last week is imagine you're a parent one day. Many of you um, are or you will be. And, and so imagine, imagine you're a parent and um, you're at the park and you're on, this is the future, so you're like you're on your iPhone 16 and you're on Instagram Plus and whatever. And so you're, you're always hanging out and Johnny or Joanna runs off to the, to the playground with all the other kids and whatever it is. And so you're doing your thing on your phone, but you glance up and you see this, this, this sweaty old bald dude with some creepy mustache, right? Wearing Crocs and his name's Chester. And, he, and he, he, he walks over, right? And you just see him like doing something like weird with your kid, right? How quick would you bolt up and run over to that weird dude? Immediately. Why? Because you know that you would have to intervene into that situation because if you did it, potentially something bad could happen. You would have to create a boundary there. Why? Because you wouldn't let your kid flirt with a situation like that because of the potential consequences that were there if left unchecked. See, that's exactly how God sees temptation in our lives when we leave it really unchecked with no boundaries. Because without the proper boundaries, temptation will lead you to sin. And when unchecked, it almost 100% lead you to sin, and it's sin that leads to death. So here's the point. No one plans to ruin their life. No one in first grade decided, I'm going to start flunking out right now so I can join a gang in 12th grade. It never happened. No one plans to ruin their life. They just don't plan not to. They just don't plan not to. The second part of that is boundaries are how we safeguard our lives from ruin. I have some pretty, like, silly boundaries. Whenever I talk about this topic, this is the one that I use. You'll never see me alone with a girl ever because I want to safeguard my marriage. And so if my boundary is so far over here that you'll never see me alone with a girl, I am a mile away from committing adultery. I'm, I am so far away from it. So we get to, and, and one of the points is, right, we get to have extreme boundaries or we get to have extreme regret, but you get to choose those things. And so you, we have to be diligent in creating boundaries because you have to know what is at stake. And what is at stake when you fall into temptation, when you fall into sin, is a less than life, is a life that is disconnected from your creator, a life that is not the life that God is intended for you, a lack of joy and fulfillment. You got to know what's at stake. And listen to the way Paul, I'm sorry, James says it in um, verse 15, he says this, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I read a really sad story this last week um, of a guy and his girlfriend who were walking through the mall. And you know how some malls, like uh, most malls are dying, but this mall had a, um, like a place where you could buy like, little like, animals, puppies specifically. So they walked in there and immediately they saw this cute little cuddly pit bull. They decided to grab the pit bull and they picked it up and they bought it. They brought it home, and about two years after, you know, the pit bull grows and things like that, and the pit bull, one day when, they come, when, when the guy came home, ended up eating their other dog. And here's what he said, and here's why I share the story. He said, if I would have known what the dog would have grown up to be, I wouldn't have got it. And so here is the point. The point. The things, that's not the point. The point is this. <laughs> when you see what something could grow into, it becomes more resistible. When you see what something has the potential to grow up into or grow into, it becomes more resistible. And here's the point. Sin grows. And when we give in to temptation, all we at first see is this cute little puppy or whatever it may be, and it's kind of easy to deal with. But James is telling us that one day what's going to happen is that sin will become full grown. It'll become, in some sense of the way, um, a mature. It, it grows up and it keeps growing until one day you realize you have something you can't control. 
that you can't get rid of, and now it's ruining your life, and you resent it, you regret it. And James tells us that you, we have to commit to this understanding. And that when we and I commit our sins, when we fall into temptation, it continues to grow and grow and grow, and that ultimately leads to death. My dad, um, he was a, an incredible um, musician. So such an incredible musician that um, when he was nine, um, him and his band would be hired by uh, like local bars and things like that in Philadelphia to come and play. At the age of 11, um, some uh, bartender thought it would have been a good idea to give my dad his first glass of whiskey. I promise you. I promise you that my dad never thought that first glass of whiskey was eventually going to lead to his last breath on earth. Because here's the point. The point is this. The things you mess with when you're young will enslave you when you are old. The things that you mess with when you're young will enslave you when you are old. And so here's the point. Be active at ridding your life of anything that has the capacity to ruin your life. Now I know what some of you are thinking, right? I've lied to my girlfriend before and I'm still breathing and I would say, well, depends on the type of girlfriend you have. But, or, or maybe, maybe you would say, right, like, I, uh, I've, had, I've had sex before marriage, you know, and, and I'm still breathing. Sin doesn't make you die. That's kind of extreme. And so I'd say, oh, well, I don't think we adequately understand what James is saying, right? Because the word that death, I think, is more accurately trans, translated as, as the term misery. So I want you to think of it this way. It's the death of things that bring you peace. It's the death of things that bring you fulfillment or joy or satisfaction um, or comfortability or whatever it may be. And I know there isn't a person in here, including me, who hasn't felt some type of misery or shame or guilt after we've fallen into our temptation. See, misery, I think, at some, le some level, is something we all can really relate to. Sometimes it happens right as soon as we give in to our temptation. Sometimes it's the morning after or sometimes it's a, it's a week after. But it will happen because sin always grows and matures into misery. And then once that misery really kind of sets in your life and in my life, once we begin to see the, the fallout of our, of our choices, we start to kind of hear a new kind of lie. We begin to believe a new kind of lie. We start hearing things like, how could you? Or a different one would be like, you, you should have known better. What if people knew what you really struggled with, what you really thought about, what you really did behind closed doors or whatever it was, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, right, the lies you believed in the first place to give in to the temptation turns into more lies. And so now, right, now we start to believe things like we're being punished by God or, or that a real Christian wouldn't struggle with things like that or that you're worthless or that you're far off from God. And these lies begin to pile up the misery begins to pile up and grow and grow and grow, and your self-esteem becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so James says, listen, like temptation is a big deal. Temptation in itself is not the sin, but it has a hook, a hook that will lead you to sin, and that sin will lead you to misery. But the next thing he says, I actually think is even a bigger deal, because I think the next thing he says is so important for us to understand. He says this in verse 16. Don't be deceived, my, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So basically, here's what he's saying. Don't believe the lie that temptation is the only good thing you have coming, or you, that is going your way. And that is because God, the creator of all things, God who is good, God who is unchanging, God who is merciful, God who is loving, has something better for you. And he doesn't just want you to avoid sin because it leads to misery. He wants to strengthen you in temptation, knowing that he offers a better alternative to what that temptation can offer you or what that sin can offer you. 
And it's that God has something far better than anything that temptation can bring your way. And he has something more fulfilling, more satisfying than anything sin could ever promise you or me. And those are two things. God promises if you and I don't fall in temptation but remain obedient to him, that you will have a better future. Because the things that other people are messing with, that become enslaved with, you are free to. Because you never mess with them in the first place. And the second thing is, is a better relationship with your creator. And I don't think anything could be better than that. A better future, a better life, and a better relationship with your creator. And so tonight as we begin to kind of land our plane, I guess here is what I would want you guys to know. It would be this. Winning against temptation isn't about avoiding it. It's about embracing something else. And to prove that, and we're going to be talking about this over the next few weeks, let me give you a question. What do you think God cares more or most about? You not giving in to sin, or you living the life that he created you to live? What do you think God cares more about? You not giving in to sin, or you living the life that he created you to live? See, how we answer that question says a lot about how you and we view God the Father. See, it's really easy sometimes to think God wants us to just be moral people. Right? There's this belief that a lot of youth groups teach, it's called moral formation, that there's like God is this great cosmic cop who's waiting for you to mess up so he can tase you, right? And that isn't the biblical view of God at all. In fact, that's a scary thought because we quickly will start believing if that who God is like, then God is mad at us. God is disappointed. And more importantly, God is against us. But the truth is, the Bible says that God cares infinitely more about you living a life full of peace a life full of, of happiness and a life full of joy and satisfaction than he does ever care about catching you doing something you shouldn't be doing. I'll say it this way. He cares less about what you avoid and more about what you choose to do instead. And God knows that once you, once I understand that about him, once you understand how much God is actually for you and what he actually wants to offer you, that temptation will lose its power. And so today I want to give you maybe two things. See, if we want to have any hope in fighting temptation, we must fill the void with something helpful and positive, and then we must actively do something. The first is this. You have to replace the lie that when you give in to your temptation, whatever that may be, that it isn't going to be actually fulfilling. The only thing that can actually fulfill you is your relationship with God. So the first, you have to replace it with truth. You've got to believe that God cares more about what we embrace than what we avoid. And then rather, the second thing I guess I would want you guys to believe or at least hold fast to is this, that God is not keeping you from something fun. Rather, he's moving, towards you, towards, moving you towards something that's good, something that's great, something that's better. And the second is we must create safeguards. We must create boundaries. See, your boundaries are going to be different than mine because your struggles are different than mine. So your boundaries are specific to you. Your, your safeguards are going to be specific to you. And so the question is, what boundaries do you need to create? I read a story a few years ago um, of a pastor that one Thursday at 2 o'clock decided he was going to go to a coffee shop to write his message. So he goes over to this local coffee shop, and he sits there, and he decides, this is an enjoyable experience. I'm going to come back every Thursday at this time. So he decides to come back every Thursday at 2 o'clock to this one specific coffee shop, and he notices over maybe a few weeks that there's a girl that's there. And this girl's sitting across from him, and, and, and they kind of give each other the eye. You remember the eye we give, like, in your third grade class, you know? And, and it's like the eye of attraction. It's the eye, like, I see you, you see me, right? And at first, right, the eye of attraction isn't anything sinful, right? 
like attraction to think people are attracted even when you're in a relationship isn't technically sinful, right? If my wife were to come to me and say like, Brad Pitt's ugly, I'd be like, you liar, he's gorgeous. Like, what do you mean? I, what do you mean, right? And so that three months in kind of continues where they're locking eyes more and more and they kind of like, you know, do a smirk or smile at each other. About the six month mark, one of them kind of walks over to each other and starts to engage in a conversation. So they start to have a little small talk here and there. About the, about the three-month mark after that, nine months from all this happening, they start to kind of flirt with each other. Then eventually, at, you know, at the 10-month mark, he sees her there. He grabs a seat next to her. Then, you know, one day he's there before her, and she comes and grabs seats next to him. And they kind of develop the relationship where they're flirting with each other and things along those lines. This, none of this would technically be sinful yet, but it definitely wouldn't be right, wise. At the 12-month mark, right, at, at the year mark, one day, they're, you know, they're flirting and things like that, and she gets up, and she says she's got to head home. Now, he's married, and she's not. She gets in her car, and he, she drives off to her house, and about a moment later, he grabs his computer and his, his Bible, and he puts it in his backpack and gets in his car and drives after her. She pulls up to her house into the driveway, walks into, her, into the house, and he pulls up in, her, um, uh, in the front of her house. Now, she's inside her house. He walks up to the front door. As he's walking up the steps with the full intention of committing adultery. He, as his hand is about to hit, to knock on the door, he has a, just a, a thought that goes quickly through his brain. What are you doing? What are you, do you have any idea of the implications of what you're about to do? It'll ruin your congregation. More importantly, it'll ruin your relationship with your kids, and it will ruin your marriage. What are you doing? He got back walked down the stairs into his car, drove home, got home to his wife, weeping and told her what the last year has been like. Then that Sunday told his congregation. In the story that I was reading, he talks about how we have to be diligent at creating boundaries, safeguarding ourselves. Because that one year, he basically kind of says that over the span of a year, that temptation grew and grew and grew and grew, which was about to lead him to sin. See, I love that story for one reason. It explains exactly how temptation works in your life and in my life. No one just one, one day says, oh, you're not my wife. Right? It doesn't happen. No one, no one wakes up being, I'm going to be an alcoholic. I'm going to be addicted to pornography. It's a slow, long road where the things that you mess with for fun become the things that enslave you later on. And that's why I think that story is so powerful. And so as we wrap up tonight, here is what I would want to leave to you. Number one would be this. Start believing that God has better. He has something better than any sin or any temptation could offer you. And two, be diligent at creating boundaries so that you can actually get to the better that God actually has for you. Let me pray for us. God, I am a... God, we are human. And what that means, Father, is we fall short every single day. Father, I want to I pray over the people in, in this audience and, God, the things that they are doing that are disconnecting them from you. I don't know what those are. But may, God, you give them wisdom and discernment to create the appropriate boundaries to safeguard their relationship with you, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, if they're married. Um, God, may you give them wisdom and discernment, God, to create the appropriate boundaries so they can become all, God, that you want for them to become. And so, Father, today if there are people in here that are enslaved in sin, and in misery. Father, I ask, God, that you liberate them. I ask, Father, that you bring them um, freedom, God, from their sin, knowing, God, that you are a God that, that, that has completely forgiven them. 
and that you love them dearly. And so, Father, today we thank you for being a God that, that cares, that knows our name, knows everything about us, and yet still continues to choose us. God, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.